from Infinite Guest, this is Top Score, a weekly visit with contemporary composers who make video game soundtracks. I'm Emily Reese. So, where were you in 1998? I was graduating from college. Uh, composer Peter McConnell was busy writing an amazing soundtrack for the game Grim Fandango. Maybe you've played it. The game blends two distinct styles. It blends the styles of the Mexican holiday, El Dia de los Muertos, with film noir. And this gives the score a unique personality. Last year, Double Fine Studios announced it was remastering Grim Fandango. And Peter all of a sudden had a chance to re-record a bunch of the music with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Here's our conversation. for me was a really uh, special project from the beginning and uh, we did everything we could to make it great when we made it um, but you know we had budget limitations and uh, technology limitations and it was you know 1998 and not uh, 2015 <laughs> and um, and so while we were able to record some wonderful stuff with the jazz players, we were not able to do the full score the way I would have liked it to be done. Mm. And um, uh, specifically, the orchestral parts were all played on uh, samplers of the time, which mm-hmm. were, you know, not so great sounding. <laughs> and, and over the years, kind of made me wince. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, and, and, and I've, always, I've always really been fond of what I was able to do on sort of thematically and and uh just the music itself and grim is 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 a, a favorite of mine um and um it's kind of tough to listen to it and go well you know um if <laughs> if the Melbourne symphony orchestra were playing that that would sound really good <laughs> uh rather yeah. than what it sounds like um and so uh it was really just a great surprise to find out that um, uh, Sony and LucasArts and Disney and Double Fine wanted to do it. And um, so, you know, I got a chance to fix stuff that I've always wanted to fix and just make it shine. And uh, so it's really awesome. about the game itself. What's it like? What's the style? Tell me a little bit about the story, if you can. Grimm um, is, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. It takes place in the uh, Land of the Dead, fashioned after the El Dia de los Muertos, the, the Day of the Dead, um, that's, that you, is celebrated in, in uh, Mexico and, and uh, other Latin American countries. And uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, I think it's probably, I think a lot more people are familiar with it now than were, um, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in the public at large when it came out. 
but uh, it's a it's a beautiful world of folk art. Just the the world, the visual world, is based on this folk art with skeletons, and uh, there are sort of these traditions that are associated with the land of the dead. When you, you bury someone you love, you you bury them with food and money so that they'll be able to take a journey in in, in the afterlife. Um, and Grimm takes that idea of the afterlife uh, and the journey, the four-year journey of the soul, and asks the question, well, what if there were crime <laughs> during, that, during that time? <laughs> It's just, you know, it's the idea of purgatory, you know, that, that things are not perfect uh, until, until you reach the end of your journey. And uh, so uh, it becomes this sort of film noir story about, um, about uh, something rotten in the land of the dead, as it were. And, and, and the main hero is a salesman who sells travel packages to souls who want to get to the, the what's called the ninth underworld of eternal peace. <laughs> And then they're wrong. The wrong. The good souls are not getting the proper travel packages, and and um, it's a, it's just a very very clever story. And the art world is the artistic world of it is beautiful, and the writing is of course it's Tim Schafer, and it's just flawless dialogue and uh, a gripping story, and just very special from a musical point of view because the the Day of the Dead, the festivals of the dead, the the um, you're touching these worlds that are just very potent musically. There's this, there's folk music associated with it. There's also the fact that it's a film noir story, so there's a lot of jazz and a lot of sort of classic underscore opportunities. And just the way there's something about Grimm, just the way the dialogue and the story uh, and the puzzles all work together. It's sort of like an opera. There's just this sense of it being. Uh, uh, a one big cohesive flow uh, of of uh, music and voice, and uh, that's what really made it special to score. Tim Schaefer, and I want to come come back to him for just a minute because you've worked with Tim many, many times over the years, and he really is a brilliant storyteller. Can you talk a little bit more about what that relationship is like to work with him? Yeah, I, you know, I, I do get that question a lot, and it's it's funny because I I don't really completely understand it myself, except that I know that it works uh, uh, really well. Uh, um, Tim is. He's a very inspiring guy. He, you know, he inspires a lot of faith and work and and trust and effort and excellence in people. And um, so with it, with with uh, Grimm, the and and he's he's for someone who's got such a powerful vision, he's really quite surprisingly hands off. And I think he just has a talent for for bringing out what people do. Picking the right people, bringing out what they do really well, and um, 
and somehow it just fits into his vision. Um, and of course, he's writing a whole lot of the dialogue, so that's you know that's that's very direct participation. But but um, but there, it's you, you kind of you you don't really you're not a really aware of being you know told what to do. You just kind of do it, and um, and uh, you know you might get a comment here or there, and then. But in the end, you sort of go, wow, that's cool, and, you know, and that's Tim's vision. And by the way, one reason why Tim uh, chose uh, a story about skeletons in the Land of the Dead was because skeletons were easy to do 3D animations of in those days. <laughs> um, so that, that, that was sort of a serendipitous thing that, that kind of made it work out nicely. But, but I was looking at all this, this art, and um, he gave me, uh, well, he, he loaned me, except I borrowed it for way too long, um, his collection of bogey movies and also um, uh, some Mexican folk music that he had that he had found uh, on vinyl, um, and uh, those two things, uh, you know, basically I watched Casablanca and um, Treasure Sierra Madre and um, Maltese Falcon like just over and 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 over, and over again, uh, which is a okay with me. Let me tell you. <laughs> Just really absorbing, and I actually got the score for for Treasure Sierra Madre um, from the archives at Warner. I think it's at Warner Warner Chapel. So I looked at some, uh, you know, I looked at those scores a little bit, and I certainly listened to them a lot. And then there was this Mexican folk music with charangos and and, and violins and um, really different sounding stuff. <laughs> So there was that sort of stage of just of listening. And then what we did is we got Tim to describe all of the rooms. That's once we once I had sort of the characters and, and, and sort of the musical background, there are all these environments in the game. And uh, the way I found it easiest to do those, those uh, score those environments was to actually sit Tim down in the recording studio and get him to talk about each one. And then we recorded that to sort of a, we made kind of a little production out of it where, you know, guys were playing bongos and we turned it into sort of a beatnik poetry session with him sort of, you know, riffing on each, on each uh, environment. And uh, then I would be able to set a, a sort of a program up where I could click on a, an environment uh, in our little software that we, that we made to do the music and hear Tim talking about that room. Cool. And, and so, you know, I'd have this map where I could click on Tim talking about the room and then um, eventually each little spot where he was talking about the room was replaced with a handheld recorder st- sketch and finally, and then a MIDI sketch and then finally a fully produced piece of music. So getting back to your question, what was it like to work with Tim? What is it like to work with Tim? There's a sort of a long distance thing where, you know, in the case of Grimm, where I was always hearing his voice talk about the room. We'd have, um, we were working in the same building in those days, and we'd have the occasional interaction about, you know, hey, you know, this is, I was thinking more this way than that way kind of thing. But um, that, I hope that answers your question. It's, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a mysterious process.
When you did the music originally, you you mentioned earlier you had the opportunity to record some of the players live. And now you've gotten to do the whole thing live with, as you said, the Melbourne Symphony. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how fun that must have been. Well, it was, I mean, just, just to be exactly correct about it, there's, there's close to three hours of uh, music in Grimm. So we weren't able to do the entire thing uh, absolutely live, but, but um, we redid in some fashion all but 45 minutes of the music. And the only music that we didn't redo in some fashion was already recorded live. So um, there, the, what we redid was either we would remix and, and re-record some live parts or in the case of the orchestral music, do the whole thing orchestrally. Um, and then on some of the tracks, we just replaced the samples with much better sounding samples. Um, so anyway, I, I, I got, I was at least able to um, get to the point where um, all those things that were bugging me before were no longer bugging me. <laughs> uh, and the big stuff, uh, the big cues that we did with orchestra, I mean, that was just fantastic because... Uh, you know, I've worked with MSO uh, before. We worked on Broken Age together. Here's one of my favorite cues from Broken Age. It's called Battle at Shell Mound, and it features the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. such a fine group and we kind of have a team going I think so it, it wasn't and, and fortunately <laughs> very fortunately it wasn't a new experience because we'd, we'd been through uh, you know we'd worked together before and uh, so we could be really efficient about um, doing this tall order because one thing I will say about the grim music is I never imagined it would actually be done live sure and so what I did was I sort of said well what would this sound like if you know a conductor were conducting the the group to picture uh, the way you know the way that you do in, in, in the way they would have done in the old days which would have been without a click in the old days you know normally when you do music for picture you're very careful about timing these days it's very rare that people will just conduct a piece of music and watch the picture while they're doing it you know they'll simply um, it, it goes to a very carefully placed click track and it's usually bad manners to change the tempo too much in too little time and get too rubato with it all those rules were broken with this score so it was a real wow. real challenge to make it sound all sort of fluid and and you know turning on a dime uh, tempo wise the way the music actually kind of does you know, it meant basically breaking a whole bunch of cues into small sections, and oh, I guess I shouldn't go into all the dirty details of it. But <laughs> well, it, it was, is um... interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. So you basically had to put some of them together like a puzzle. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, you know, if you're going to do something where 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 it's sort of a Carl Stalling esque, you know, sort of Looney Tunes kind of flow of music where the, the tempo just changes. It's like a big accordion and it yep. changes with the emotion all the time. Mm -hmm. That 
I mean, sure, you can you can write it that way, and you can perform it that way, and you can play it that way perfectly. But it takes a ton of rehearsal, which you really can't do in a sort of in a film recording session. Right. So I've looked at I've looked at uh, you know unless you have a, just a giant budget. But um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so what what we did was I, I you know I just had to break up those pieces into a lot of little sections so that we could get each section just right. So we got to remember the picture was fixed. Uh, it still had to basically match exactly the old music because one thing we couldn't do is redo all those cutscenes or redo, um, you know, that was just not a level that was possible to do. I mean, the assets didn't even exist. So um, it was it was a real interesting challenge and I'm really super proud of what we were able to do with it because we did get that that feeling of the flow um, just very nicely. Um, I think yes. the intro scene is a good example of that. You keep saying all these things. You, you say one thing and I think of five more questions. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to try and rein it in. But uh, first of all, it does. It sounds absolutely fabulous. And, you know, you've talked a lot about Max Steiner and his influence, but you also mm-hmm. did one, you mentioned one other name that you and I have talked about before, and that's Carl Stalling. Because, yes. you know, when you hear this this grim music, it, it's 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 so nostalgic uh, just for the style in which you've written some of it, right? Because mm-hmm. it is that Carl Stalling Looney Tunes style. And when I hear it, I get the feeling like I'm in an adventure. I mean, well, I just grew up with that. I grew up sort of addicted to cartoons, right? This is composer Carl Stalling. He's rehearsing a cue for a Looney Tunes cartoon. The cue is called Putty Tat Trouble. And listen for each time the orchestra starts, you'll hear the clicking of the metronome counting the beat. That makes sure that every time the orchestra plays it, it's the same length, and it can be very easily matched to the cartoon that way. All right, here we go. Production number 1171. Put it that trouble. Part 6. There's a very strong cultural association that comes from that, that great old stuff, you know, about what music does with picture. And I think part of what happened there was, was I'm, I'm just speculating, but, you know, all that sort of film underscore comes from the tradition of opera. But you typically don't score, you know, blinking in, in, you know, Puccini, right? It's, it's, there's a much larger, uh, there's a lot more room for, and in fact, it's more like the people on stage are kind of moving to the music rather than the other way around. But in, I think with animation, one of the things that was exciting to people about animation is that, gee, you know, now we do, we're doing things frame by frame. We could really get crazy with how we sync them up. And it, in the same way that we get crazy with uh, Eddie hits Eddie over the head with a front pan, you know, all these things that you can't do in real life with with the physical part of animation. I think there's also things that are very hard to do in real life with the sonic part of animation in terms of choreographing the sound to the picture. 
So um, yes, I grew up on that sort of tight knitting of, of sound and of, of music and, and action. A lot of humor can be gotten from that. And, um, and I was definitely going for a gentle nudge of, of that sort of uh, you know, marriage of uh, music and, and uh, gesture. I think of, of Grimm as the Mission District. Um, the Mission District is a, is a part of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I think of it as the Mission District uh, score because the Mission, Mission District is, was a, is a place where there's, there's a lot of Latino residents and then there's also a lot of, um, now it's sort of gentrified, but in those days there were the sort of, uh, you know, young artists, starving artists, were, a lot of them were living in the Mission and you had all these clubs that, that were a really interesting mix. Hmm. Um, you had uh, swing clubs, uh, acid jazz clubs, so you could go out and, and hear, um, you know, Tom Waits or somebody like that. And then you could go around the corner to the taqueria and there'd be a mariachi band playing. <laughs> and literally every player on that original score was from that scene. You know, there, there was a band called the Red Hot Skillet Liquors that was an incredible swing band. I think they're still playing. Um, and most of the you know horns and reeds came from from that group, and um, Tom Waits's uh, uh, one of his reed players was uh, uh, Ralph Carney. He plays a bunch of solos on the on those original tracks, and uh, then there you know there's a mariachi band that I, I, I found by you know going around the corner literally in the Mission District and talking to one of the guys who was playing at the taqueria. And uh, so, I mean, I, I mean, I just picked up the whole band literally by by walking around, <laughs> or you know, if if not literally walking around the mission, figuratively walking around it. Um, that I think was a reflection of the larger culture. I wish I could give you a shorter answer. To that, but there you <laughs> I liked that one just fine. <laughs> mariachi band, things like that. I I really enjoy the way you write for various sections of the orchestra. It seems like you're able to capitalize on really specific characteristics of the instruments, like you'll have the brass play in a militaristic style, or you'll have the bassoons playing this very mischievous, or maybe bass clarinet mm-hmm. or something being very mischievous, and uh, the strings will do something where they're trembling. I mean, just all these really classic quintessential things all wrapped up into uh, just great music so what do you enjoy about writing for these various sections little families in the orchestra i think part of it is i wish i could play all the instruments 
And since I can't, uh, you know, it's a vicarious thrill to sort of imagine everything that you could do with, say, a bass clarinet or a, or a bass trombone um, or, or a flute. Um, there's just, uh, it, it's like an adventure in, in, uh, in, in, its, in pretend land, you know. Well, now I'm, <laughs> now, now I'm going to be a wind player and to do everything you can do with winds. And, you know, the, all those those things you talked about with the, you know the brass being militaristic or you know and John the way John Williams uses brass you know, and I can't talk about doing a LucasArts title without mentioning John Williams it's just not possible you know you learn by listening to to uh to John Williams what to do with a tuba or a bass trombone you learn by listening to Carl Stalling what to do with a bassoon or or um I think uh, also Prokofiev is a big, for some reason, well, how can he not be the grandfather, right? Anyway, that's what's great about writing for orchestra, is you get to write for all these different instruments and, um, and make them work together and, uh, you know, create a new instrument out of them. And, and you do play a lot of instruments, even though you, you know, you kind of uh, don't do yourself a lot of credit by saying you're not a professional. Surely, Peter, surely you played <laughs> something on this soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, the guitars that aren't classical guitars, um, I played. And, um, and the charango I played. Um, the... Uh, violin in the tango. That's my one little bit of, of uh, serious violin playing that I'll ever do. Um, let's see. Yeah, there, I mean, there was a lot of stuff. Um, basically, I play things with strings on them, but the, uh, the except for the classical guitar, which I really, um, that I wanted a real, a real classical player for to get that tone, that sort of rich vibrato. And fortunately, my uh, colleague Clint Bajakian uh, majored in guitar at New England Conservatory, so I had that covered. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think it was mostly violins, uh, violin, various violin parts and guitar parts that you know, folk, folk or a jazz guitar parts that I played on the score. Regarding balancing these, the, you know, this film noir and the Day of the Dead influence, what kinds of sounds, perhaps maybe unusual sounds, non-orchestral, if you will, sounds, did you use to uh, highlight those differences? The uh, like the charango is is a good example because um, it's a uh, Tim had one. His brother had picked it up in Mexico. It's a folk instrument made out of a armadillo shell <laughs> it's very delicate you can sort of fake it by by strumming a mandolin with your fingers okay um but it's not the same sound it's yeah. a it's it has a very it has a sort of a uh, earthier more delicate and more haunting sound than a mandolin and um so that you know getting a real charango was was really important and um, another, there, there were also some Andean flutes we used. There was a fellow that I met who also, by the way, lived in the Mission District. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Who uh, played these incredible, the, the um, cana and the tarka, these incredible, uh, you know, Andean flutes. And um, those were very interesting to work with because they were in a, a geeky thing. They were kind of in their own pitch, so you had to kind of play with that a little bit. Uh, their own pitch center. But anyway, I think the approach to... Getting sounds was to 
to um, not try to be, like I say, particularly ethnic, but to try to be uh, organic, to try to be honest, to try to um, evoke a, a kind of texture that was real. One of the funny questions that the assistant who works here for Top Score, he, he was curious how the Aussies did with the, uh, with the jazz and the, and the Latin American music. I would imagine they, were, they probably nailed it and didn't have too much trouble, but sometimes orchestral musicians, regardless of if they're Australian or American or wherever, sometimes they can struggle with some of those stylistic genres that they don't play very often. You know, that's, it is true that that can be the case, uh, and I've encountered it in, in various contexts in the past. I mean, the, 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 um, the cultural grounds of uh, something like a swing beat, if you haven't grown up with it, you're just not going to get it. It's just this, this, the truth. There's all kinds of things about the history of jazz where you can sort of tell where the players come from because of their different approaches to swing. And um, honestly, the um, I know that the, the they were a little bit um, MSO was a little bit expressed a little bit of trepidation about one of those uh, sl- uh, one of those um, uh, one of the cues that was sort of a swinging cue, mm. um, but you know they nailed it. <laughs> it was <laughs> awesome. just fine. Awesome. It was great. <laughs> great, cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, it's my great pleasure. I really appreciate it, Emily. Awesome. so much for listening to Top Score. You can check out our other podcasts at infiniteguest.org. You can also learn more about Peter McConnell and see a full playlist from this episode at infiniteguest.org. Top Score's production assistants are Pierce Huxtable and Nina Patak. Mark Hintz mixes each episode. Top Score is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. Follow Top Score on Twitter and Facebook at Top Score Podcast. That's Top Score. I'm Emily Reese.